Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And And this this is Storymakers Show. (laughs) And we are so fortunate to be here with Mika Perks, um, whose new novel is just out. It's called What Becomes Us. Um, She's also the author of the novel We Are Gathered Here, a memoir, Pagan Time, and a long personal essay, Alone in the Woods, Cheryl Strayed, My Daughter and Me, which is available through SheBooks. Um, Her short stories and essays have won five Pushcart Prize nominations and appeared in Epoch, Ziziva, Tin House, The Toast, Ozzy, O-Z-Y, and The Rumpus, amongst many journals and anthologies. Excerpts of What Becomes Us won a National Endowment for the Arts grant and the New Guard Machigone, Machigone 2014 Fiction, if you can correct my pronunciation, Fiction Prize. She received her BA and MFA from Cornell University and now lives with her family in Santa Cruz, which is actually where Angie and I met, where she co-directs the creative writing program at UCSC. And um, I, I just want to add from your sort of broader bio that you also grew up, I mean, and this is part of your memoir, in a um, kind of a commune in the Adirondack Mountains, which is which is sort of somewhat perhaps germane to this novel. <laughs> That, that is correct. So welcome, Mika. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And I just also want to say that um, it's a pleasure to be with both of you. I'm a big fan of your films and um, and your literary work as well. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> this is fun. Yes. Um, so we start with what we're working on and, um, and we'll begin and then we'll move to Mika and, and take it from there. And I'll start. I, I got notes from my agent on my new novel, and um, a lot of it seemed to boil down to the stakes, like, which, which actually we want to talk to you about by coincidence. So, yeah. <laughs> um, so then uh, I said to her, well, who would be someone really good to work on um, with, you know, plot with? And she said, there, I just can't think of anybody. <laughs> and I said, well, I actually can. You know, my partner Angie is actually really, really good at this. She's like, well, why hasn't she read it? So she's heard a lot of it. I read a lot of it to her. But Angie is now officially reading um, and I am waiting for Wait, her. Wait, is this what you're working on or what I'm working well, on? Well, <laughs> what I'm working on is, is waiting patiently. <laughs> which, I, which I really need to work on. And um, and then I, you know, I was talking with a friend who does some coaching with me and she was saying to really like be, instead of just being like, oh my God, I'm waiting to be more conscious about kind of using this as a time to replenish the well so that when I dive back in, mm-hmm. I actually, you know, to, I actually feel not just like wrung out and like, you know, she said, it's like, I, it's like I went through the ninth month of pregnancy and gave birth. And now my agent is like, okay, just go through the ninth month again and give birth one more time. Yes. I completely relate to that. <laughs> so just trying to kind of recuperate before I go back there. <laughs> so, um, Angie. Well, my big project, surprisingly, is uh, right now I'm giving notes and that's a very long <laughs> process. Um, and uh, I'm also trying to get, continue to move forward. It's the same thing every week. I'm working on getting a feature film together. And so I feel like the script is in a pretty good place and there's some more stuff always that you can do with that. Um, but I'm ready now to sort of sit down and start getting the schedule together and, and getting into those more pre-production things that let you know you're actually moving forward. Wow. That's exciting. Yes. So Mika, what are you working on right now? 
Um, well, I'm mostly grading student papers at the moment. Um, I've been working, okay, I'll tell, um, I don't have, when I finished, this is what I guess I would say. When I finished my novel, which I worked on for over 10 years, I actually say 10 years because it's embarrassing that it's actually more than 10 years. Um, but, uh, I, I, when I first finished it, I was like, I will never write another novel again. That was just too much. It was just too long, too horrific. So, um, since I finished, I've been working on essays, um, and some short stories and I, but I'm just, so I will say that I do have an essay that I just finished. Well, I'm finishing the rewrites this weekend and it, it, but it's actually kind of comes out of my novel. It's, um, it's about, it's kind of looking at fetal narratives and, um, it's comparing my novel with, um, just recently out Ian McEwen's novel, um, yes. Nutshell, which actually came out a week before mine, yay. And, um, <laughs> ah, I, I know, I noticed that. And then also actually Carlos Fuentes has a novel, um, Christopher Unborn that that's also has a fetal narrative. Mm-hmm. So we so I was looking at those. Just why would someone do that? What are the what are the stakes? And yeah. what is what are um, what are the metaphors? What's involved with that? What's the impulse behind that? Yeah. yeah. So I, so that's coming out. And that'll be on, out on the Rumpus um, soon. I think. Like in a, I, I have to finish it, but in the next couple of weeks. And then um, I am kind of edging towards maybe writing another novel. Um, Mike Birth, you'll forget the pain of this last one. Say that. Yeah. Okay. I'm waiting to forget the pain. (laughs) Yeah. But it's funny that it is, it is inching up on you. Like the desire, even right. The desire. You're walking by people with novels and those novels look cute. And you're thinking, Oh, I miss it when it was just a manuscript. (laughs) Exactly. And, or, but this time it will only take me, what, a year, a two years. It'll yeah. be, it'll be fast. <laughs> I always think of Juno Diaz, you know, because, and how, and his despair and, and, and it just takes a long time to write a book. Yeah, it mm-hmm. does for some people <laughs> like me. Well, let's talk about your process. Cause I know you have a really amazing writing group, uh, or at least oh, a yeah. writing group full of really amazing people. <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. That's really lucky. Um, well, my writing process for this book, um, I did actually, um, workshop this, um, book with my writing group, I think actually twice. Um, yeah, they read two full. So the first time, one of the times that I was rewriting it, um, they read it kind of chapter by chapter over the course of probably six months or so. Um, and that was a revision. And so, or maybe even a year that was, um, and that was really helpful. Of course, um, my writing group, um, uh, at that time it was a Karen Joy Fowler, um, Elizabeth McKenzie, um, uh, and then two writers, um, Melissa Sanders self and an, a YA writer named Jill Wolfson. Um, they were super helpful. Really. It, it was a really good group. And, um, and then I subsequently rewrote it all again. Um, and that was in response, that was kind of out of despair. My, um, my agent had tried to send it out and no, there were no takers. And I told her to stop sending it out. Um, cause I thought this isn't, I was scared. Like I didn't want it to go out everywhere in the world and get ding. And so, 
Um, then I decided, wait a second, um, I'm going to completely rewrite this novel. Um, I'm going to make it reader friendly. I'm going to make it a more traditional novel. So I changed the um, narration to the narration originally was um, a fetal narrative voice. So it was the voice of this this fetus inside a pregnant mother. And I decided I was just going to make it third person. And then I another part of the novel is that the main character um, was kind of being was obsessed with this uh, 18th century uh, woman named Mary Rowlandson, who's an actual woman. And I decided to change that so that she was actually a ghost haunting her because I thought if she was physical and like people like ghosts right now and oh, this is, you know, this is going to be a book like a. Um, a book that's not so complicated and difficult and experimental. And so I spent like a year rewriting it and then I brought it to my writing group and um, I went, I remember so clearly going to this meeting. It was at Elizabeth McKenzie's house and it was um, at this picnic table in her backyard and I sat down, they were all already sitting there and there's just silence, like really oh. awkward silence. And then there was sort of these like kind sort of like, Brightly, I remember Lisa saying brightly, well, if you just take out the ghost, it'll be great, you know, which was threaded through the entire book. And then um, <laughs> someone said, I really miss the old book. You know, like, so it was like that. <sighs> Basically, they hated it. And they, they thought that they didn't say I sold out, but I think that was <laughs> they didn't say that. They were very kind and trying to be constructive, but they really did not like what I had done with the book. And then I went home and I was kind of cried probably and I thought oh they're crazy you know and then um after a few weeks I thought yeah they're right um and then I just and then I sort of just decided screw it I am going to just double I, th I kind of thought okay what do I like about this book why did I even write this in the first place because it had been so many years and I realized that my I was really attached to um, the fetal narrative. I liked mm -hmm. that voice. It's a kind of like a big storytelling voice. Um, kind of like a once, a, once in upon a time, 19th century poetry kind of voice. So, or that's what I wanted it to be. And so I decided, okay, forget it. I'm going to have actually two. <laughs> and, um, and then I did, and then I, instead of having the character, I realized with the ghost that, um, I don't believe in ghosts, although I'm completely, um, have no judgment about people who do. It's just that I don't. And so I realized that it didn't feel real because I didn't believe in it. And so I decided to have it more of a kind of magical realist, um, maybe a little like, um, Shirley Jackson, like, mm. uh, creepy haunting, but maybe not real, maybe in her head, that kind of thing. And that worked much, uh, the ambiguity. That, yeah, that worked more for me. From, from how I see the world. So I did that. So, I, yeah, just, you know, another couple of years and uh, rewrote it. Okay. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't think of this, like, explicitly when I was reading it, but but as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, there's the, the collective fetal narrator, which I think neither Ian McEwen, perhaps, or um, who else did you say did a... Oh, Carlos Fuentes. Carlos Fuentes. Yeah. Right. There, neither of them has the collective fetal narrator, but, um, and then this, this kind of ghost dream presence. And so it's interesting to think of like this kind of, the sort of psychologically haunted and the physically, like the physical haunting of the pregnancy. <laughs> yeah, I know. And you know what's crazy? You're, you're going to think I'm so d dense, but 
I only thought of this after I finished the book, which is that in the writing of the course, the writing of the book, I joined a blended family or blended a family so that I had had two kids and then my partner has two kids. And so we became a family of six instead of, you know, two and, you know, three and three. And I kind of obviously felt wronged by people and by children. And in this novel, this um, character, Evie, the main character, she is both literally, literally and figuratively thronged by people. There's two inside of her and kind of Mary Rollinson is inside her too. So she's just the, you know, the boundaries are sort of all being overrun. Um, <laughs> the boundary of her off. body is overrun. So that's yeah. another feminist exploration. I bet like 20 years from now, someone at Mills is going to write, write their thesis on the <laughs> Blurred feminine boundaries uh, and fetal narratives. Yeah, well, I, we can only hope. Yeah. <laughs> I love, you know, the title, too, What Becomes Us, right? Because it's got, I mean, speaking of feminists, right? I mean, it has the whole sort of idea of, of like, becoming, like, what is, you know, what is proper or, or appealing or attractive, but also, of course, this, you know, becoming, like, literally coming into, anyway. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was also, I had lists and lists of titles that I, I couldn't find the right one. And um, for a while, I called it Sweet Honesty. And then I even took out the reference to that. So it didn't make any sense anymore. And, <laughs> and I was calling it, okay, I thought that the most, I, I decided on, um, this is a quote from Mary Rowlandson. And it was, I, it was a shadow, a blast, a bubble. Mm-hmm. And that <laughs> And that, that was um, Mary, Roll- Mary Rollinson said that the world is but a shadow of blast of bubble. And mm. I thought, oh, that's so beautiful. I'm going to call my book a shadow of blast of bubble. But not too many people like that idea, <laughs> particularly my editor um, and several other writers and editors also said that was a real – well, one person said, that's not doing you any good. <laughs> so I had to go back to, to think through it. Well, titles are a fascinating creature unto themselves. So do you have a like a title with which you work in development to help guide your vision a little bit? Or do you kind of wait till you're done and you just call it, you know, manuscript four? I, I do what you said first. I, um, I have a title that I'm kind of working with. Um, and then but still at the same time in my journal, or my notebook or whatever, I, I keep a running list of titles and I try not to judge them. Like I try to just, you know, kind of free associate. And so there's, you know, may, there might be 50 titles there. And so just trying to think through, trying to kind of naturally happen upon another title in case another one is better. And then of course, when you end up working with agents or editors, then they have their own um, ideas of, about what, what the title should be as well. Yeah. So when you went back to what you loved about the book, I'm I'm intrigued by that. And I will say, you know, right at the moment when I was reading your book, I was thinking like, I should turn my book into a thriller because then the stakes will be really high. Right. Totally. Yeah. (laughs) And, um, and it was actually really wonderful to read your book and remember how drawn in I can be to, to a book where the stakes aren't, uh, you know, is someone dead. Global collapse. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So, um, so, you know, kind of grappling with what the market wants, what the readers say, you know, the, 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 the beta readers, 
versus and sort of what your original vision is, and yet you can't. Yeah. I don't know. What any any wisdom out of the whole thing? How about a yeah. question? Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, that's such a when you said that about the stakes, it really um, it was really familiar to me because that was my biggest. Um, kind of um, fear about my novel and also I got feedback that it that it was that the stakes weren't high enough as well and you know that nothing's happening um and so I did actually like you at one point go in into the novel and think about the stakes um and I basically went through every scene and tried to make it more difficult for my main character so I, I, I tried to push her harder. Um, it wasn't really, um, I didn't, I didn't do any more like larger stakes, you know, like a, a dead person or a killer on the loose or anything like that. But I did do, um, in each scene, just, just basically saying, push her harder, like push her into a corner, make things more uncomfortable for her. Um, and that was the best that I could do. And then, um, and then, but actually, uh, you know, I've been the, really happily, I've been getting a lot of feedback that people said, oh, I, um, you know, that they were, they were gross. Like they wanted to turn the pages. Um, of course, not everybody, but, um, but that, you know, that has been sort of one of the main things people said, which has been um, really surprising to me because that, because that was what I thought was the biggest problem of the book. Yeah, yeah. no, it's really pleasurable and the characters are quirky and unexpected and the obstacles you know but i think if you go and you know some of what you've described you're talking about people who have lifelong relationships and what are those going to look like and and how do we go through this change together and i think those are incredibly high stakes their identity level uh uh, their spiritual that you know so even though it may not be a dead body um i think those kinds of stakes are really high it's just you know sometimes it's harder to convey that you know what I mean especially you know yeah even um maybe this would be interesting too is that um to writers but um the ending I I had an original ending where I tried to pump up the stakes more and there was actually um even a stabbing and it was it was really chaotic and everybody in the novel was sort of back in together facing each other and um so I had that and that was even, that's what went out in the galley. And then, um, just this summer, um, my partner, like you two, my partner's, um, a good reader and he finally read the book and he was really supportive. But then he said, I don't like the ending. I don't think, I think it's not believable. I think it seems like satire. It doesn't fit with the rest of the book. And so then I, I was like, Oh shoot, you know, <laughs> it's really late. But then I emailed my publisher, my editor, and I said, you know, this is what Juan thinks. What do you think? And he said, well, kind of like a little ironically, well, I told you that six months ago. And I, and I hadn't even remembered. <laughs> I was like, oh, whatever. And so um, so then he, I said, well, how, how much time do I have before I can change this? And he said, a week. And so... I just spent a week changing. It was just really the last 20 pages, but I changed the last 20 pages in a week. And I hope, you know, I took in a certain way, I lowered the stakes, you know, because I took out um, the violence Mm -hmm. and I took out some of the characters. So wasn't everybody in the entire novel at the same moment um, getting stabbed. 
Exactly. <laughs> Everyone's stabbing everyone. <laughs> it's actually a, a really... A, sorry, what? Oh, I said, and then the world ended. Right, right. Yes. It's a really unusual ending. I mean, no, we, I won't say we won't talk about it in detail because spoilers and all that, but I mean, it's... It's, and you do, I mean, you, but you end in a heightened moment where, where we have, where we're taking what they've, what the characters have discussed and imagined as, you know what I mean? As, as clues to what's coming. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, and then also kind of a, a, well, I wouldn't say it's not a cliffhanger exactly, but it's got elements of that. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Yeah. So um, is there a sequel then? <laughs> No way. No way. The toddler narrator. Yes. (laughs) That would be actually much shorter and simpler. Yeah. Like a board book. And occasionally angrier. Yeah. Yeah, That would be kind of like Godzilla. Yeah. (laughs) So Lauren Groff loves Mary Rowlandson, apparently. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. What I so lucked out in that. How did you how did you find that out and connect with her? Because she blurbs the book. I had no idea. I just, um, okay, so she, I'm a huge fan of her work, and um, I met her at a reading, but not really met her. I was just in line, you know, sh- like everybody else, shaking her hand. I talked to her for a few minutes, and then, um, oh, because she wrote um, a novel about this a 60s commune, and I wrote a memoir about living on a 60s commune, so we talked about that a little bit, and then... Um, somehow she gave me her email. I guess she said, oh, I, maybe I said I would send it to her or something. And then I just Have sent you? her, um, I didn't send her the memoir. <laughs> I just ended up sending her the galley of the book. And that's how it happened. It was just completely lucky that, um, she loves Mary Rowlandson and that she had time to read it and her busy schedule. And, you know, it was just super, just, um, fortuitous for me. Well, it's not just luck because she could look at three pages and decide she didn't have time. That's no, ma- no matter how much she loved Mary Rowlandson. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. That's true. I love Mary Rowlandson and this is not it. You know, like. Well, that's true too. Yeah. She's super gracious too. You know, just in, cause she said that she had been trying to write about Mary Rowlandson for 20 years and that, you know, so that could have been like, I hate you. you know? Yeah. But I think we can, I mean, that's sort of, we have our steal this, which we'll get to in a little bit, you know, our steal this segment, but. There yeah. is something, there is some way in which, I mean, you know, with the, with the Ian McEwen, it's like, clearly you weren't stealing from each other. I mean, you and Ian McEwen, as far as I know. I actually think he might've stolen it from yeah, me. But. Right? I th- yeah. Because <laughs> you, he probably didn't start it 10 years ago because he was working yeah. on those other books. <laughs> I just don't know who the stooge, like who went to him and told him what I was doing. Right. Yeah. Exactly. But I mean, but ultimately, you know, even if um, Lauren Groff writes a book about Mary Rowlandson, it'll be a different book, right? Yeah, of course. And she's brilliant. And I would love to read that book. <laughs> <laughs> In a nutshell. Yes. Um, and then I um, I just want to touch briefly on on the different things you have. Um, like you have the, the She Books essay. Um, which sounds amazing, actually. I'm, I'm going to go read it. I haven't yet. But um, and then you have a couple of audio. Yeah, sure. But it's, it looks sounds fascinating. Yeah. Um, um, oh, in the audio. Yeah. yeah. Uh, OK, so. All right. So the um, the she book was really fun. That um, that is was um, a feminist Internet startup um, called She Books and run by started by two women. Um, who are journalists and, um, they just, um, they just sort of, you know, started this ebook company of kind of, it was supposed to be long form journalism and they felt that there wasn't enough venues for women, 
writing long form journalism. So, um, but it, it quickly morphed more into, I think most of their, the work they ended up publishing was memoir or as my piece is kind of like a, um, essay memoirs, you know, there, it has characteristics. It's more of an, I like to call it more of an essay, I think then, then, but there is a memoir in it. And so that piece is called alone in the woods, Cheryl strayed my daughter and me. And it's about, um, it's basically the, the, the autobiographical part is about my daughter who was a teenager and um, her, de- her kind of desire to be in the woods alone in many different venues and, um, and how reading Cheryl Strayed with the book that I gave her really um, intensified that desire. And, um, and then it's sort of, it's about, um, women being alone in the woods in general and, um, mothers and daughters and the kind of cultural ideas, um, about what it means for a woman to be alone in the woods, which usually almost all of our images are dead, young, naked girls. Um, and that that's what happens when girls or a little red riding hood, right? Or, Or even, yeah, it goes back even further. Yeah. Um, so, so grappling with that and grappling with my own fear of being in the woods alone. And so, so that's what that's about. Mm. And then, um, the audio stuff is just, it's mostly, um, I have some short stories that are, um, that have actually pagan times on audio and alone in the woods is on audio. And then I have several short stories that are on audible. They're all on audible. Do you, uh, voice them? No, I don't do any of that. I, I don't know if you're noticing here, but I've got kind of like a little squeaky voice. When people call, they often say, is your mother home? <laughs> so, uh, I, nobody has picked me to do that uh, for some crazy reason. Um, so, no, it's, it's it's fancy actors doing it. Yeah. Ooh. Does anybody have like a <laughs> British accent? Like, do you like Judy Dench? <laughs> it was super fun with the stories because um, one of my stories is um, narrated by this um, – um, it's turn of the century and it's an old Jewish guy and the, the actor actor had to play Houdini as well because there's dialogue with Houdini's in the story. And that was really fun. And he did do a kind of like radio voice, you know, a kind of Houdini, a little British sounding radio voice that Houdini used to do. Uh, and he did this great old um, Jewish voice. And then another actor for another story, there's a Chilean guy talking to a, uh, he does, he has a lot of voice in the story. And so this, um, this woman does a Chilean accent. So that was fun to hear. And they did a great job too. Amazing. So just in case you ever get to pick, let me just say Stockard Channing does a wonderful audio voice. So what a great, I love Stockard Channing. She did Ramona. She did the whole oh, Ramona series. Which and, we've heard about 17 times in total. And we actually, like, I don't get bored of it because she does such a great job with all the voices. God, she has that amazing deep voice. It's yeah. beautiful. And yeah. she does all the different, you know, all the different characters and somehow she tracks it. It's pretty amazing. But. Oh, I definitely would love this. <laughs> I love that too, so that would be fun. So you run the creative writing program or co-run uh, the creative yeah, writing program? Yeah, I co it. Um... I co-directed it for almost 20 years with Karen Yamashita, and who's another writer, famous writer. And um, yeah, so we've been doing that. We've kind of, um, it wasn't, it was here when we got here, but it, we've developed a lot of stuff. We've developed a PhD program and a reading series. Um, those are sort of our main two things that we do. So we have a, something called the Living Writers Series, which we bring um, I know you've read for it, I think, haven't you, Elizabeth? Yeah, yeah, I did. You did FTF. 
Yeah, yeah, you did FTF. Yeah. yeah, so we do that. So we we bring about anywhere from like five to seven writers a quarter, and then um, and that's attached. All the creative writing students come to that, and and then we also just started that we're in the third year of a creative critical PhD program as well. So great. Nice. So all right. So the controversies about teaching creative writing, and here you are, you know, a, an active writer and also teacher. Um, can you talk about kind of what, what are the ways that you feel like creative writing can be taught or can be nurtured? Oh, that's a great question. And also, we should also say that um, Elizabeth taught at UCSC as well. She was, she was an excellent teacher. I love right. being. You probably have more to say about this than I do. But um, I, uh, so it really, I don't really understand, and maybe you can tell me about this. I, it's really frustrating to me that of creative well, writing of all the arts is the one that people say you can't teach. Like nobody says you can't teach music or dance or even painting, which is weird. Um, but people say, oh, you can't teach writing. And to me, um, I've always felt like writing can be taught in the same way that any other field, even like science can be taught in the fact that you can teach somebody the kind of um, culture and practice of any discipline. You can't teach someone like you could teach someone in a biology class, you know, the, the culture and practice of practices and ways of thinking in biology. You can't teach someone to be um, a famous, brilliant scientist. Right. So yeah. I think that's kind of maybe the schism when I'm teaching my students, I'm trying to um bring them into or help them understand, you know, just the culture and practices of writers, the varied cultures and practices. And then if, um, but they may go on or they may not go on and they may become, they may bring whatever they have, their own ambition and intensity and talent that will make something amazing happen. Or they may just take that in knowledge and apply it to something else. Do you think yeah. you can teach someone to have something to say? Oh, excellent question. Um, I think I can help them find what it is that, that they already have to say, but no, definitely not. I mean, but these are, at least the students I'm teaching, they're, they're mostly very young. You know, they mm -hmm. haven't, they still have a lot of life to live and they may find something to say about the amazing things that happen to them in the future. So just because they're 20 and they don't have anything to say at that moment or anything they haven't found what they have to say doesn't necessarily mean much you know I've had for instance my student um, Molly Antipole um, who's now um, you know she's written a really award-winning um, book of short stories when she was in my class she was mostly writing kind of breakup stories like I mean she was talented but it wasn't like that was an incredible um, subject, you know, but now her, she just ended up writing these incredible stories that, that are historical and definitely not even autobiographical in any way and about, they take place in, um, you know, all different historical periods and countries. So who knows where people are going to take their, you know, take the work. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. I wanted to also just, I, I probably should have segued this in somewhere else more neatly, but, um, but I'm always really interested in the difference between writing fiction and writing nonfiction. And since you've done both quite a bit, I wanted to ask you about that. I, I tried to do a memoir and found oh. it incredibly challenging. Um, oh. You know, the, so I thought, oh, this is going to be fantastic because I already have all the material. I don't have to make it up <laughs> yeah. and, I, and I know how to write. Um, but no, I, because you have to choose the material and shape it into a story. And 
somehow that was more challenging than making up the material for a story to me. Oh, that's so interesting. So what did you end up doing with the memoir? So I, I sent a hundred pages to Fingers my drawer. Yeah. My, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. My agent, I said, I had sent a hundred pages to my agent and she said, well, this is about your childhood. And I thought this was a memoir about your marriage. It was also kind of, I was like, I have a great hook because gay marriage might become legal any moment now. And right. here I am somebody who never lived in a marriage in my childhood and never lived in a legal marriage in my adulthood, learning what marriage means through my personal life as my country is coming slowly to recognize my marriage as a marriage. So I thought like, this is a great hook. And then, you know, it that did, it read, yeah. then it did recognize my marriage. So it's a little anticlimactic to be like, and two <laughs> years ago this happened and it just sort of, and then I sent it pages in my, are you saying you're bummed out? That <laughs> no, <laughs> Well, no. um, it's so much more literary. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah, we just you know, yeah. So anyway, so I that's sort of that's sort of the, the story of the memoir. But um, yeah, yeah. So how how was it for you to to switch gear and write a memoir? Um. Okay. Well, when I originally did it many years ago, it was yeah, it was challenging. I it was similar. I I thought, oh, I'll just. So I wrote my memoir. Uh, I had already written a novel. So then I, my second book was a memoir. And I thought, like, oh, the, as you thought, oh, this is going to be so easy. I'll just write my, myself. And then I started to write. And I thought, well, who the hell? Like, who is myself? Like, there's so many. I have so many cells. And what, what voice? I didn't know what voice to use. And then I remember this so well. I was... Um, this was... I was still in, the, in Ithaca, New York, where I had gone to grad school. And I was... Um, taking a walk with a friend of mine, Paul Cody, who's a writer and had also gone to grad school with me. And he, and I was complaining and whining about the, uh, my memoir, um, or trying to write it. And then he said, well, why don't you just use Violet Ann's voice? And Violet Ann was a character that I, a, a fictional character that I had written several stories about in grad school. And she was sort of, um, spunky rural teenager. And I thought, uh, okay. So then I, so that's really what I did. I just, um, I used my, a fictional voice, a voice that I had made up that I had thought of as a fictional voice for my memoir. And that really did work for me. Um, as a, certainly to get in, I think it changed as I moved through the memoir. Um, and so, and since then, I would say that I find in general writing memoir easier than writing fiction. Um, because, okay, this is what I figured out about myself because I couldn't figure out why it was, I found it so much easier. And I think it's this. I think that I was trained up in a, um, a very much a modernist, um, idea of what is literature. And so when I, when I go to write fiction, I feel, a real need to be experimental, to, to challenge myself in ways, um, in modernist ways, you know, and, um, and when I'm writing memoir or essays, I don't feel that I, I have, I, I actually have no training. Like I didn't go to school in writing memoir or I just read stuff um, on my own. So I don't have that those teachers and writers in my head telling me the way to do it. So I do my memoir and my essay writing tends to be much more traditional, um, in form. And so it's easy, right? Easier, not easy, but it's easier because I don't think about that. I'm just sort of thinking about, um, saying what I want to say and thinking about what I want to say in the most, um, using the best language possible, the strongest mm. language, but I'm not thinking, how can I explode this form? You know, um, 
So, so yeah, that that's my that's what's for me. So maybe you should just try to do really traditional memoir. Well, you know, it's the voice thing. I think that's it, voice right? Because part. that gives yeah. you a, a coherent, if if fictional self. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's true. And I think like over the years, I've developed like I feel like I have a voice that I u- probably use a pretty similar, not always, but a pretty similar voice. I think in my in when I'm writing memoir, maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> Have you thought of trying on somebody else's fictional character as a voice? I love that for my memoir. Yeah. That's brilliant. Oh, you know, I, I actually think you have something there. I'm going to try that. I, I remember I think you should. And I think you should drop maybe, I think, Lucy from The Peanuts and how she might have experienced some aspect of your life if you're going to write about Santa Cruz. How might I, Lucy oh have seen God. that? I am not kidding. That is brilliant. <laughs> you just exploded the whole genre. Okay, there. Yeah, so that's what yeah, I, I do on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm going to be next time I come on. It's, I'm going to be reading the Lucy piece. Nice, yeah, I love it. I love it. The Lucy Chronicles. <laughs> well, exactly. when, you're, when you're talking about like the the essays as having sort of a traditional form, what does that actually mean to you? Oh, God. Okay, now you're asking a hard question. Um, that, I think what that means to me is that, okay, well, um, so I, memoir to me is a lot about the interrogation. So you're looking at your life and you're thinking about uh, what is the meaning, like trying to figure out what the meaning is. And so there's a, um, it's a kind of circling, a kind of circling of a question about your life or your life in a, in a in a, yeah, and in a kind of interrogatory way. And so I think when I'm writing, I'm just um, memoir or essay, uh, essays too, probably. I'm more thinking about um, going, explaining what happened, like the event, or if it's a book, you know, my relationship to the book, um, and circling it and thinking and trying to figure out why, you know, what's the meaning of this or why I care so much about this. You know, it could be like uh, my obsession with Willa Cather when I was um, younger, or it could be um, my relationship with my daughter or, you know, um, have one about Edith Wharton. So, you know, there's so there's those. And um, and I'm more thinking about and then it it often becomes that the that that thinking process culminates in me realizing something, a kind of epiphany, and which is pretty traditional, right? Um, and then I, well, at least traditional um, from the 20th century. And then, um, and then I, so I come up with that epiphany, and that's often kind of the end of the piece, you know, very close to the end of the piece. And so then I, and then when I'm reworking it, I'm not changing the form. Like I, I still have that epiphany at the end of the piece. I'm just kind of making it. Uh, sound better, I guess. Clearer. And do you think like David Sedaris has a traditional form, or do you think he's doing something slightly different? A uh, good question. Um, I think that the the pieces you know I have I have only read uh, one book and then many pieces of the New Yorker. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I think that I would say David Sedaris also has a kind of a traditional form, and that yeah. Okay, so who do I think has a non-traditional form? Um, there's so many exciting people. Maggie Nelson, mm-hmm. um, Michelle T, Sarah Manguso, um, even the woman, um, Alexievich, who won the Nobel Prize. She does a lot of really incredible experimental work. So, uh, Or even someone like Nosgaard or Ben Lerner, who write kind of autobiograph- very autobiographical fiction that has their own names as the main characters. So... 
Um, so there are a lot of people doing really interesting stuff in essay writing and memoir. In fact, I think that work is sort of in some ways the most exciting work that's happening right now. I'm just not participating in it. Maybe, I will. Maybe now with my new Lucy idea, I will. Be. Just, just as long as the voices don't come in and tell you you have to. You blockhead. <laughs> right? <laughs> All right, it's time for Steal This, that portion of our podcast where we uh, steal from T.S. Eliot. You would think after this many episodes, I would remember that it was T.S. Eliot. Um, and it is that amateur <laughs> poets borrow, professional poets steal. I love that. Yeah, there's actually, I've, I've in the book... That's our dog. In the book, uh, Steal Like an Artist, um, which is fantastic, he uh, he quotes that and he has a much fuller quote of it, which I will, it's in the living room right now, but some other future episode, I will read the full quote because it's... Or you could just put him in the show notes. I will also put him in the show notes. Um, so we each talk about um, what we, uh, something we've come across that we want to um, steal and make our own, I think, which I, which is what I, well, that's how I define, um, stealing. <laughs> and, um, and I, I will just go back to, to what I was actually saying, which was in reading, um, in reading your book, Mika, what I, it was that sense of like the pleasure of being, you know, actually she's, uh, she sort of has a hero's journey maybe, except in the end, instead of returning to her community with the elixir or whatever, she has kind of created a community um, or is in the midst, I would say, in, in, a, in the midst, in a crisis of creating a community, which I, which I love. So, um, so, but, but, but so just to kind of, like I mentioned before, we're just to go back to my real, you know, early pleasure in character and in story um, that isn't driven by the market and isn't driven by, I, I, I do like thrillers. I love Rebecca or whatever, but you know, I, but it's not the thing I'm reading all the time. So, um, so just, that's what I want to do is to, to steal sort of to steal back that from, from your wonderful book, that, that pleasure in just people's human journeys. I love that. Yeah. That's, um, I'm going to have to quote you to my students on Tuesday. Cause I think that's a, a really smart thing to say. Yeah. <laughs> not, the part about, not the part about stealing from me, but I mean, that there's many, as we know, we've all read a lot from even from childhood, read books where we remember the pleasure of, of reading. And yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, that's when in my teaching, what I mostly do is I bring in short excerpts and we'll be focusing on some aspect of craft and I'll say, okay, here's an example. And then they use it as a model, but with their own content. Yeah, I do that too. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so, you know, it's, it is, it's like, but, but what I think it does is we're, we're all so much more evolved as readers, you know, than as writers because we started there and, and do it. I don't know. Anyway, it seems to me. And so it brings our reader into the project of being the writer. Yeah. That's great. And how about you? Um, I am actually reading to the kids intermittently. The, uh, going again through the Oz series and we're on the second book, um, which for those of you who don't know is the fabulous story about tip. And, um, and in that he does this wonderful thing where they bring these creatures to life with the powder of life. And one of the creatures that they make is specifically to get them out of a bad situation. I mean, the whole book's awesome. If you haven't read it, I haven't. Oh my gosh. It's an early transgender narrative. It kind of is. Don't give away oh, really? the ending. Yeah. 
So basically, <laughs> all right, I'm going to give away the whole thing right Since now. Since I already did the spoiler. So basically, it follows the story of this boy, Tip, who lives with this witch, Mombi. And as he runs away because she's cruel and mean and, you know, he's made a person out of a pumpkin named Jack Pumpkinhead and he gets a sawhorse and he is going to the Emerald City. And when he gets there, the Emerald City has been taken over by these girls who have come from all over Oz. And this is the army of revolt. And they have, with their knitting needles, taken over the Emerald City and forced men into subjugation. And Are you kidding me? No. Why have I never read this? So I think you know why you game? haven't read this. And so... And there's Just lots of like the name of the book again. Uh, it's called the I think it's called the Wonderful Land of Oz. It's the second. It's in the, the second Oz series. Second, okay. And so, and there's General Ginger, and she's like you know doing stuff, and, and they spoiler alert, yes, and they like come into the city, and you know they run into these men who are all haggard, and the women are making us do all this stuff, and the scarecrow's like, well, if it was so hard, how did the women manage it? You know, it was just like these great, he was a big feminist. But anyway, I love the story because uh, the Scarecrow and they all go down to Glinda to get help from her to get the Emerald City back. And she's like, I'm not going to help you because you're not the rightful ruler. And in fact, the rightful ruler is a person named Ozma of Oz, whose family was deposed by the wizard. And she will help that happen. So then there's this whole search for the for Ozma and what happened to her. And it turns out, after we've gone through this whole thing, that um, Ozma is Tip. And what they've done to hide her is put a spell on her so she would be a boy. And and they let Tip know. And he's like, I don't want to become a girl and do this whole thing. And um, But in the rest of the series, like, Ozma's, like, always riding her sawhorse. And she's always doing these things. And she's friends with, you know, these people but she maintains some of the boyishness that she had as Tip. So that's sort of... That the, sounds fascinating. Yeah, right? And it was written in yeah. like 1904. And what are you stealing from that? What I'm stealing <laughs> from that is they one. make this character called the Gump. And what I love is that it's made from all these different bits and pieces. But it's this completely made up world. And like a Gump is apparently a very prideful animal. Hmm. And, uh, and so... Just that he has such a completeness for all of his characters that don't come from, like, huge backstories or whatever. It's like, you know, it's the gump is sort of like an elk and its head is on the wall. And when they bring it to life, he's like, I'm glad I'm not a gump because I would be mortified if I had to tell my friends I looked like this. And so there's the whole, every character has that kind of really quick, clear description, but they're all very vivid and separate. So that's huh. what I'd like to see. Super interesting. And Mika, what would you like to steal? Okay. Well, I, um, I, this is going to be probably ironic to you since I was just saying that I do, um, my memoir and essays are pretty traditional, but, um, the book that I have been really taken with this, um, the last few, uh, the last really month or six weeks is Michelle T's Black Wave. Have you guys read that yet? Not yet. Okay. Well, well, it just came out in any case. Um, and she was just here, um, giving a reading at, uh, UC Santa Cruz and I'm so envious. Like when I read it, I was, I was like, oh my God, why did I not think of that? So basically, um, Michelle T is, it's a, um, I think it's a memoir. Some people call it a novel, but it's, it's one of those. So the main character's name is Michelle. 
Um, and it's about kind of 90s queer culture in San Francisco and L.A. Um, and she does have fictional elements. But then when she she'll later tell us, I made that up. And what really happened is this. Mm-hmm. And, and but that so that's super cool. But the part that I find so brilliant and funny is that. So the Michelle in the in the book is an alcoholic and a drug addict. And she's kind of at the nadir of her of that experience of of going through that and kind of realizing that. So it's a, it's a kind of a personal apocalypse. But Michelle, the author, has has made it the apocalypse in the whole world. So it's basically everything that's happening is um, kind of just what, you know, it sounds like a memoir, but then it's also happens to be the end of the world in it in the, in the late nineties in a kind of way that we all sort of thought it was going to be the end of the world, like the Y2K thing, <laughs> right. but it really is the end of the world. And, but so she just kind of like plopped it there and it's so kind of, it's so witty um, and smart. And she, and we know she tells us she's plopping it there. It's not like she's pretending that that's actually there, but then she plays it out, you know? So she's like, um, spoiler alert. She ends up having sex with Matt Dillon in the apocalypse and just, it's kind of, all this stuff <laughs> happened. So, uh, <laughs> You're like, why are you so stealing anyway, having I, sex with Matt Dillon? <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm stealing. No, so I, I just want to, I want to think about, and I have been thinking about how, I could play more in a way it's kind of like what Angie you were talking about a kind of maybe or part of the Oz what I was getting from the Oz story of of a kind of playfulness Mm -hmm. of oh you know anything can happen um even in a memoir but I have to like I have to if it's going to happen I have to completely embody this and make this make this work in in this world but and I guess you should, it's called Black Wave. We will, we, we definitely will definitely will. read it. And that sounds, that sounds, I love that idea too of giving, it's really permission, right? You're giving yes. yourself permission to go yeah. all the way with, with it. Um, Nika, how can people find your book and find you online and so forth? Oh, okay. Well, I have a website and um, I also, so there's that. And the website has links to all the various places where you could buy it. You could buy it. Um, you know, they're there, or you could just buy, you could ask your local bookstore or you could get it from evil Amazon, or you could get it from Barnes and Noble or indie bound, or, you know, there's lots of different, um, basically all, I think all, and it's also an ebook, like all the usual, um, places you can, um, get it. And, um, and all of that's wonderful, but if you did happen to be at your local bookstore, that would probably be the most amazing place to buy it. I did order it through my local bookstore. And uh, one of your former students is teaching there at Copperfield Sebastopol. Not teaching. She's no, not teaching. She's uh, doing clerk. the thing you do at the thing that you do at a bookstore. <laughs> is it Rose? Um, what? Well, do you know what student is? is I, it, well, we can talk about it later, but I, maybe it's Rose. Yeah, I asked her her name, but now I forget it. But anyway. Shave it the head. Well, we have, I don't know. Yeah, well, that's Santa Cruz. I mean, right. Yeah. I mean, I had a shame. That was when Santa I was Cruz in the 90s. Cruz, I, was, I didn't think it was Santa Cruz all the time. It's all still happening. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> you guys look like I did 20 years ago. <laughs> 
So, and links to um, MikaPorks.com, I think, is your website, and all of the things we talked about, and um, the book, and all of that will be at StorymakersShow.com. And I also um, ask folks who are listening to subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher if you haven't already, and if you can review us, um, that really helps people find us. So, um, review us on iTunes or Stitcher. Thank you so, so much, Mika. For- oh, that was so fun. I loved having this little conversation. <laughs> it was Yay, really a you. pleasure. And this is Storymaker Show. Mm-hmm.